Hello and welcome. You're just arriving. My name is May Elliott. I'm the organizer and facilitator for Young Urban Zen. As we're getting started here, uh, if you'd like to sit with your camera on, that can be helpful for creating a sense of community. So if, if that's comfortable for you, please do. And if it's not comfortable, that is totally okay too. I know many of you have been on Zoom for long hours today, and so please do what really makes this a nurturing space for you. So it's great to be here with some of you, many of you I haven't seen for a while. So nice to see you, Anna, and Kostiv, and Pasha, and Rohine, Karina, Kelly, Lauren, Sean, Olivia, Asha, Erica, Jeremy. Welcome. Welcome, all of you. It's nice to have a smaller group this evening. So um, let's see, maybe for those that don't know me, I am beaming to you from San Francisco Zen Center in the heart of the city. Um, and I'll, I'll kick it off with just a couple announcements, which we often do at the end of the evening, but I'll start with those. Uh, so the first is that we have a Google group. So if you'd like to be on the Yuz Google group, um, we'll put a link in the chat for that shortly. And uh, that's online space where I'll send out information for upcoming Young Urban Zen meetings, such as the theme and the speaker. Uh, and people will send out ways to connect with each other. So maybe upcoming events or um, even housing posts to find other like-minded people who are into the Dharma to live with. So that's the first. And the second announcement um, is related to dana or generosity. So dana is the Pali word for generosity. And the, um, and the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha have been, uh, have been supported by the generosity of practitioners like yourself for 2,500 years. And it's really the support of the laity that's made it so that the Dharma can continue from generation to generation. So if you find yourself um, supported in some way from the teachings tonight uh, and you'd like to make a donation, it will support San Francisco's End Center and Young Urban Zen. Um, and there's a link in the chat to a Venmo, um, a Venmo handle uh, that you can make a gift through. Um, and maybe also noting and for some people uh, that work for organizations that match gifts, uh, Zen Center is a place that employers can match a gift for. So if that's something that interests you, you can send me a link or send me a chat and I will tell you more about that. So um, let's see. Oh, it may be worth mentioning the suggested donation is $10 for this group, but please, uh, please offer whatever gives you joy to offer. Okay, I think that's it for announcements. So maybe I'll get started with my talk for the evening. I'll share for about mm, probably 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have a chance to ask questions and have a large group conversation before breaking up into small groups. Oh, and I might throw in a little personal writing exercise in there. So let's see, maybe, Maybe I'll start by sharing that when I first just first started practicing 
the Dharma, when I first started meditating, uh, my sense of what was spiritual was rather compartmentalized. So there were certain things that I related to uh, spiritual or holy, like meditation or ceremony, very much uh, time in nature, uh, states of bliss or connection with loved ones. And then there were the mundane things that were not part of my spiritual life, like paying bills or going shopping or dating or eating. Um, and over time, I've come to realize that Zen practice includes everything. Uh, Zen practice is radically inclusive. At, at its best, nothing is left out. So tonight I want to highlight something uh, that's often considered mundane, that is so common, it's hardly paid attention to, and yet it can really dictate a large part of our life. So the subject I'd like to discuss is food and eating. That's the theme for the evening. And uh, maybe I will share a story with you. Uh, and it's related to my relationship with food. And it starts about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I became quite sick. I woke up one morning, uh, a fairly typical morning with um, nothing unusual in the days prior. And I woke up with really terrible digestive pain rather excruciating digestive pain. And this went on for a day and a week and a couple weeks. And I saw many, many health practitioners or um, health care providers in Western traditions and Eastern traditions. Nobody could really figure out what was going on with my digestion. Um, and during this time, I might only be able to eat a few bites of food over the course of the day or at a given meal. Um, and it was quite distressing, as you might imagine. Um, and this, this period ended up being um, quite a challenge for me, um, for many reasons. Uh, the not knowing why I was sick or what was happening. Um, not being able uh, to eat the foods that I loved. The fear of, of what was going to happen to my body if I wasn't able to eat for an extended period if this kept going. Um, and the loss of social experiences around food, getting to um, cook meals with friends, um, feeling healthy enough to go out for walks with friends, or even to sit and have a cup of tea. This, you know, this wasn't a part of my um, ability level at that time. So uh, food became somewhat of an obsession as my body went into more of a survival mode. Um, at that time, uh, I probably weighed about, after several months of this, I probably weighed about 85 pounds and I'm, I'm five foot seven. So I was, I was pretty sick. Um, and from this challenging period, um, there was so much suffering around what was lost but it ended up being a tremendous catalyst for my practice. I was lucky enough that I was already very connected to the Dharma and, uh, and already very connected to meditation. And so it really plunged me deeper into practice and it's practice that really helped me uh, learn to be free during this experience, to learn to be a somewhat stable and functioning human um, with an emotional reservoir uh, while I went through this. 
And so something that I learned through practicing with this, um, and particularly around the suffering related to, to food, to eating and not eating, um, was that the suffering uh, wasn't necessarily from my physical pain that I was experiencing, but rather the craving associated uh, with the food that I couldn't eat, the craving uh, to be able to do things I could no longer do. And of course, it's quite natural to crave food. We depend on it. Uh, and yet how much of that craving is, um, is due to basing our happiness in the sense pleasure of eating. So the sense that I'll be happy when I can eat the thing I want to eat or do the thing I want to do. Um, there's certainly craving for nutrition, that natural hunger the body has. And then there's all of the craving for having what's delicious. Um, and so uh, one doesn't have to have a, a chronic health issue to see how much mentally, emotionally, and physically one is invested in food, food beyond just a form of nutrition. Um, people organize themselves around when, when they're going to eat, uh, what they'll be making for dinner. That's a common track I've noticed in meditation, what, what one is going to have for the next meal. Uh, finding the best restaurant or learning to make the best apple pie. Um, and on the flip side, we're disgusted in greater or lesser degrees over unpleasant food. So some get angry when the food is too hot or cold or burned or undercooked. And we might take pride in making a great meal or feel ashamed for overcooking the turkey. Uh, so perhaps at its most stark, we see that people in um, the dominant American culture are dying over attachment to unhealthy foods and to eating too much. Um, the, the third Zen ancestor said, the great way is not difficult for those without preferences. The great way is not difficult for those without preferences. Yet food is of course an area of incredible preference. Seeing ourselves disappointed when the food at a restaurant is uh, not salty enough or too salty, um, or worrying about having too much food or too little food, or it's too processed, or if it, would, it would be better if it was fried, or people having judgment about the ways other eat, or the ways that others eat, or the ways that oneself eats. Um, so we're in a culture rife with binge eating or starving oneself. So, so much is wrapped into food. And literally hundreds of thousands of people are dying annually from obesity. We're literally killing ourselves with food. So as food is such a central part of life that we can't escape from, that we can't just stop doing, and we are relating to it every day, how can we make that experience conducive to liberation? How can we make our practice with eating conducive of freedom. So in the Four Noble Truths, which is uh, one of the core Buddhist teachings, uh, the first noble truth is that there's suffering in this life. Um, the second truth is the source of that suffering, which is, the, which is craving. Um, and so of course there's nothing wrong with having craving to eat. It signals that we need to fuel ourselves um, however, how much of our, our eating comes from craving for sense pleasure. This craving for sense pleasure doesn't take us 
to a reliable happiness because we all know that when we have a, something that is fulfilling in terms of sense pleasure, um, it doesn't last. Uh, it, it is unreliable. Maybe having that bite of chocolate is satisfying for a few minutes, but how long before we feel the next tug towards uh, something else that we want? And I think uh, it's easy to see this in a variety of small ways in one's life. Um, I can think of uh, working at jobs in the past and um, feeling myself getting tired and feel that little pining for a cup of coffee or getting uh, agitated while being in line waiting for a food that I see is um, slowly disappe disappearing. Maybe the, somebody else is getting the last slice of birthday cake and starting to feel that agitation. Um, so yeah, there's this deep-seated delusion that says, I'll be happy when I get the new apartment, the new job, the car, the lover, when I get the ice cream or the coffee or the burrito, etc. cetera. Uh, my happiness is not here, but it is dependent upon something else. Um, so when our happiness depends on sense pleasures, our happiness is based on a very, a very shaky foundation. Uh, and we're liable to suffer and cause suffering when we don't get what we want, or we get what we don't want, or we lose what we love when that thing um, passes, when we, um, when we don't have the delicious food anymore, or we finish it. Um, So in order to wake up to why we eat, it takes attention. Uh, we can see our own mind when we're sitting meditation, um, but can we see our own mind when we're sitting with a bowl of rice? Uh, it actually really requires us to listen in order to identify our habits around eating. And this listening can illuminate how and why we suffer. It can be a Dharma gate that shows us the way towards freedom. And so as we train in meditation, it's like turning on a light within us to see what's happening in here mentally and emotionally. And then we can bring that with us uh, to our eating practice. So this evening, I'll largely be talking about a set of teachings from the book Mindful Eating by Jan Chosen Bays, who's a Zen teacher and physician. And we'll talk um, in two weeks. I'll offer a second part to this talk. Uh, to look at another facet of mindful eating and practicing with food. And during that meeting, I'll talk about some different aspects of, of um, maybe of how we can eat differently. But tonight, I want to look at why we eat. And so uh, Jan Chosen Bayes talks about seven types of hunger, um, the hunger, the why we eat. Um, and she actually, since writing her book, she added in an eighth one. So I'll be talking about these eight types of hunger. And I think they're excellent ways for becoming more intimate with what is calling us to eat. So the first, and actually I'll go ahead and I'll, I'm, I am a visual learner and maybe some of you are as well. So I'm going to post these in the chat for you. So the first is I hunger and nose hunger, ear hunger, 
mouth hunger, heart hunger, that's the new one actually, mind hunger, cellular hunger, and stomach hunger. So those are the eight types of hunger. And I'm gonna say a little bit about what each of them are, what, what, um, how we define them, and then we'll get a chance to explore them a little bit in our own life and practice. So as you listen, um, uh, maybe you can be listening with an ear for your own experience. Um, how for you, do you experience eye hunger or ear hunger, et cetera? So to start, I'll, I'll start with eye hunger. So um, this is hunger that's based on something we see. Um, so the eyes make contact with, um, with a food item or a picture of food and it looks delicious and we want it. So this might be the advertisement of the flame broiled Whopper or the shrimp piatti being tossed in slow motion in the Olive Garden commercial, um, or the glistening pastry behind the counter at the deli. Um, so it's when we see something and we go, oh, I want that croissant. Um, so it's not that there's any sort of physical uh, need for nutrition happening there, but it's a craving that comes from eye contact. Um, there's eye contact, it's pleasant, and the mind grasps. There's craving for that item. So nose hunger is uh, when we crave something based on smell. Uh, so um, maybe walking down the street and uh, maybe walking into uh, something that smells like fresh baked bread and suddenly there's a bakery around here and the pull of the nose towards getting something to eat based on the smell. And so you could probably guess ear hunger. Similarly, it's a hunger or a craving based on the sound of food. So uh, maybe that's the distinctive sound of sizzling bacon or the sound of an ice cream truck going by or hearing uh, the pop of a can of soda being opened and the way that that can create a perception in the mind, a mental formation, a picture of the food item we think is associated with that sound and then we lean into it. The, the, the mind that is not um, being attended to, the natural response of the mind is typically to grasp, to go towards that thing that seems pleasant. Mouth hunger is the craving of taste. And this is, of course, what we typically associate with overeating or with, uh, with our, our uh, craving mechanism. I want to eat more because it tastes good, very simply. Um, and and uh, I imagine all of us have had the experience of how deeply insatiable mouth hunger is. Um, the, the stomach and the torso can be actually in quite a bit of pain from overeating and the mouth hunger is still not satiated. It still wants more sweet or spicy or sour, crunchy, smooth, juicy, you know, whatever the thing is, it, it's, it can want more. So now we'll get to um, maybe some slightly more abstract ones, but still probably quite familiar. So heart hunger is next. So this is emotional hunger. 
we eat because we're bored or sad or frustrated or lonely or uh, we need a distraction. So there's no actual physical, um, there's no contact at one of the sense stores that triggers the connection to, to the food item. Um, but we go to it for something pleasant to cover, cover over what is unpleasant within us. Um, and we, we have a term for this, comfort foods. Um, so you might consider what do you eat when you're wanting a distraction? The next is cellular hunger. And I think I might not be going exactly, your list in the chat has mind hunger next. So I'll, I'll share that one next. So mind hunger is based on thoughts. Uh, so it could be anything from, I should eat more green vegetables and that's what drives us towards eating the thing. That's why we eat the salad or whatever. Or maybe the thought is I worked overtime today so I've earned a slice of pizza. Um, or we think gluten isn't healthy, I should stop eating, eating it. So often mind, mind hunger can appear in the forms of shoulds or shouldn'ts. And it can come from a place of uh, wisdom or uh, generous thought of non-harming. So it can have a, a wholesome intention to heal rather than harm oneself with the, the, the thoughts we have about food. But it can also come from more destructive places. We can have, we can punish ourselves in relationship to food or judge ourselves or um, rationalize within us why, why we should be eating or can be eating something that's unhealthy for us. So next, cellular hunger. So cellular hunger is what the body uh, the body needs, often it's more um, a deeper hunger uh, that isn't based in sense craving um, and not based in thoughts. Um, but it can often be this kind of deeper sense of what the body um, uh, needs in terms of nourishment or nutrition. Um, so often, uh, if I'm, if I'm feeling some sort of hunger impulse, some sort of impulse to eat something, I'll check in with my body and, and just ask it what, what it, it wants to eat, not the, not the sense craving. But um, yeah, sometimes my mind might say, ooh, ice cream sounds good. But when I check in with my body, it actually might feel uh, maybe a little too disconnected. And I actually want some, the body wants something a little more grounding. Um, like beans or something with higher fat. Um, uh, so when I was uh, really sick, looping back to this experience I had about 10 years ago, um, I often really noticed cellular hunger, especially in lieu of being able to eat very often, I would notice really what the body wanted to eat. So during that time, interestingly enough, I craved cashew butter, and I, I like cashew butter, but it, was, it wasn't anything until then that my body really was pulled to. Um, and, and many of us have heard about 
pregnant, pregnant women having uh, very unique cravings for things like sardines or pickles or even garden dirt. Um, so this you know, pulse towards the cells wanting water or salt or fat or protein or minerals. Um, that when we're a little more quiet, we might be able to connect and feel that. And often that's, that's not something that's available to us or the body is just not speaking up in that way. One thing that, one way that the body does speak up um, is stomach hunger. So this is uh, what we often associate as the only hunger uh, and we inadvertently lump all of these types of hunger that I've just mentioned into stomach hunger, thinking that if we're going towards food, it's because we're actually hungry, that we actually have stomach hunger, which of course is not always the case. Um, stomach hunger is the physical, biological hunger that we know because the stomach tells us it's time to eat. Maybe feelings of emptiness in the gut or digestive fluids or kind of pulling or hollowness. Then um, we can attend to our stomach hunger by eating until the stomach is full and it will tell us when it's overfilled, especially if we eat slowly enough to allow the body to, um, to register that it's been fed. So I think I hit all eight types of hunger there. And I wanna say that the arising of these types of hunger isn't good or bad. It's actually um, part of the natural process of being a human is to have uh, to see and hear and smell things that are pleasant um, and or alternatively unpleasant. This is just part of having a body. Um, and we don't need to shame ourselves or pride ourselves on uh, whether we're noticing or not noticing any of these types of hunger. Um, the way that I find that they are useful, and for me specifically, learning these uh, eight types of hunger provided a point of clarity for me. So it was taking this whole mass of experience that I used to just call, I'm hungry, and allowing me to discern um, the different uh, threads of what was actually happening in me. So helping me discern um, whether I was reaching for food from a wholesome place or an unwholesome place. And when I say that I don't have a moralistic association with wholesome or unwholesome, I simply mean, um, is this, if um, is this type of hunger that's arising, if I act on that, is that conducive to uh, ease and well-being um, and non-harming, or is it an action based in greed and delusion? Um, because actions based in greed and delusion don't lead to um, a steady happiness in one's life. So how do we actually practice? with these types of hunger. First of all, just noticing them is fabulous. And that can, like, as I said, for me, it helps me see what's going on. And once I'm aware of what's going on, um, I have a greater chance of choosing something skillful. So the greater our awareness, the greater our choice, and the greater our chance to live wisely, to be truly happy and without stress. Uh, so typically in a moment where we're not mindful, we might come to our senses um, without realizing that we've even gotten hungry in any way. And we're already standing in the 7-Eleven parking lot 
after finishing three corn dogs. Um, but with mindfulness, we might actually see the process as it unfolds, rather than catching ourselves at the end of this maybe unhealthy habit pattern. You might notice that we're ruminating about a disappointing conversation with our boss when we stop to fill up the, the car with gas. And from that sad feeling, we reach for something to cover that feeling. Uh, and so we head, headed towards the hot bar and ordered a family pack of corn dogs. Um, but when we're, we're present for that whole process uh, and we see the way the body feels, we might notice, oh, heart hunger. This is actually heart hunger. Um, there actually isn't any stomach hunger or cellular hunger present. Um, we have a choice to be able to let it go. Um, and sometimes we can't let it go. Sometimes uh, the craving has too much of a grip on us. And when that's the case, we just be with that experience completely. We, be, we can be upright with our, our craving and our engagement in eating whatever it is that we are um, uh, clinging to, that we, we really feel strongly that we just must simply eat. Um, and that's a really fabulous source of learning to, to be able to see uh, what it's like uh, to crave and not be able to let something go and to notice what that feels like in the body. Uh, when there is enough space in the mind and we can see the craving and not need to act on it, it's a really powerful experience of not having to let the craving drive the bus. We don't have to let our craving uh, tell us what to do. Uh, we don't have to let it legislate our lives and actions. Uh, we can still be kind to it. We don't have to stamp it out or reject it. Um, but kind of in the same way that we might uh, interact with a, a hungry dog. That's how we can relate to our, our craving. Uh, so we can be kind and compassionate, but we don't need to feed the dog all the time. We don't have to feed the dog every time it begs. Uh, but you know, we can, oh, sweetheart, I know you want a biscuit, but you can't have a biscuit right now. Um, and in that way, making room for um, including whatever arises um, and not being bossed around by it. So, over the years, I can think of many times where uh, there was mouth hunger or mind hunger or ear hunger, uh, and I wasn't able to have the food that I wanted, and I suffered over it. Um, and over time, I've come to, through that process of being with the craving, without acting on it, um, I've been able to see how that feels in the body and to actually feel how unpleasant craving is. And of course, this whole time talking about craving with you, sure it applies to food, but it applies also to all of the things that we crave in our life. Um, uh, interpersonally, relationally, financially, in terms of employment, all across the board. Um, and with other sense pleasures too, um, like with um, the temperature of our body or with touch or with uh, good music. And we crave 
all sorts of things. Um, so learning to see how to, to feel what it's like to be caught in craving and to really be with it, to really feel the sensations in the body of the craving, maybe a tightening in the, uh, in the chest or um, a pulling feeling in the body or um, the way that the mind can tighten around something and latch onto it. Um, to just really be present for that really trains the, the body that craving is actually unpleasant in and of itself. Um, so rather than, well, maybe first I can say for me, having gone through the spin cycle of craving so many times and actually being present for it, actually, actually feeling it in the body, um, it's really transformed my relationship to craving such that um, often when, when, to come back to this example of food, um, there might be an image in the mind of something I want to eat. Um, and uh, immediately the mind will drop it. And I'm not the one saying, oh, I should let that go, or I shouldn't eat that. It's not, it's not a process of deliberation um, or really me doing it. Um, it's just the mind drops it in the same way that if I were to put my hand on a hot stove, I wouldn't have to be like, oh, you know, maybe you should stop touching the hot stove. This probably isn't good for you. It's probably not wise to be touching the hot stove. Is this wholesome or unwholesome? I don't think it's very wholesome. Um, it's not like that. We just, you know, we touch the stove and then immediately pull our hand back. And in the same way, we can train our mind and heart to, to feel that craving, seeking something outside ourselves for happiness um, is unreliable. And feeling the suffering of that craving, feeling the discomfort of that craving, teaches the mind that when it touches craving, um, that it doesn't feel good. And it feels the contraction of craving, um, that it can release it. And in that sense, um, our system becomes the Dharma. Our body-mind becomes the Dharma um, because we can let go. The mind and heart let go because it knows where happiness and unhappiness lie. So these eight types of hunger uh, can really teach us discernment. And from that place of clarity, we can hold our relationship to food with compassion and with the mind of renunciation, with that willingness to let go, um, to not have the last bite on the plate if we really feel complete, if we feel full. And when our craving or judgment arises, can be compassionate towards it. Um, and this is right intention as we see it in the Eightfold Path, um, meeting whatever arises with non-clinging and kindness. So maybe I will close um, with the wish that all beings know great ease and well-being in their relationship to food. And may all of you be deeply nourished. Thank you for your attention.